I'm just trying to make my voice sound as good as yours. <laughs> Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to InsureTech Amplified. I am out microphoned today. This rarely ever happens to me. We are joined by Alexis Vaughn, the founder and the CEO of Off Course Consulting. I'll ask you about that in a second, but Alexis, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to have you on the show. Just for some context, can you give our listeners a little bit, and I say a little bit because I remember when we prepped, like, your background is so diverse and so, like, you've done so many things. I feel like we could do a podcast just on that, but give us a little <laughs> bit of context here. Yeah, you know, thanks for having me, Michael. Like, I really appreciate it. This is such a great opportunity to share a little bit about my background, my expertise. So I'm going to give you the elevator pitch version. So basically, I've been in the insurance industry now for about 14 years. I like to say that I have an insurance unicorn background because when it comes to the insure tech space, I've literally been every person in the distribution cycle. <laughs> <laughs> so I started my career out as a captive agent. They call those the retail agents. Um, very early on, I actually started out with a company called Country Financial, also okay. State Farm, had a captive agency, personal lines, and financial uh, products as well, since I have my securities license. Uh, it was it was pretty awesome. Within less than two years, um, I moved to a brand new market where I didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of network connections, truly. I had about 25, 25 people in my natural market. So it was a big, big risk for me to relocate to the Atlanta, Georgia market. I'm originally from Alabama where I knew everyone. I had been there my whole life. And I said, I'm gonna take this big leap of faith, relocate to Atlanta and start an agency. In less than two years, I grew my agency from 25 clients to 1,165 clients wow. off of pure networking and relationship building, which was exciting. <laughs> so, Alexis, what is it about you that's so compelling that makes people like you so much because you can't do that. Do you know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> not standard. Yeah, I know what you mean. So I, I like to definitely give a little bit of credit to uh, my Southern personality. I am, <laughs> <laughs> I am extra Southern and I, I feel like, and also when it comes to the uh, insurance industry, I'm also passionate yeah. about what I do in the insurance industry. And I cannot talk about insurance without my passion coming through. Um, and I feel like that has been a huge, huge, uh, you know, key to my success so quickly in the industry. Because no matter what it is, even if I just started selling the product, I'm going to deep dive into it. And then I'm going to figure out how to give that knowledge back out to the masses and educate, whether it's the policyholders or other agents and brokers on it. So I think that's definitely key to it, you know, and I'm always thinking about when I present myself in any type of service that I'm offering a positioning, a product or solution, I'm thinking about how can I help you? I start every conversation that way. I never go looking for business. It's more of a, how can I actually be of service to you? What can I do for you? But isn't this the key sales thing? I think that people should really learn is that if you're the best way to sell somebody something is to not sell them anything at all. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what you mean. Like, it's a huge reason why my agency became 75% referral based. Right. That's the within point. Within the though, first yeah. year. Mm -hmm. That's the point. That's the point. You sell without selling. And, you know, you make it about them. Like, what are their needs? What are they looking for? Um, so I definitely contribute that to a lot of my success. So, you know, back. Fast forward a little bit, I decided to leave the captive side because I really wanted to make a larger impact. At the time, I was a single mom, so I started to meet other single moms who were really interested in a career in the insurance industry. And what I noticed was there was not a lot of opportunities for them because most agencies, um, whether it's a large carrier agency, um, they actually didn't provide like the structure for someone who was not married. A lot of times what happens, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of times what happens is when you get ready to start an agency, they interview you and your significant other. Really? And they make it very clear. Yes, they do. Your significant other is a part of the interview process. 
because the biggest thing is you have to have someone else who can truly pay the bills because you may not make a profit and be able to pay yourself for the first one to two years of building your agency. So they like to make that pretty clear, especially when you're going to have like a storefront agency, more of a retail shop because you have huge overhead. Um, And I think that was key. And I was able to find a company who provided something a little different because I knew that I couldn't afford not to pay myself. I was my only stream of income. So I wanted to show other single moms how to do that, which is why I started the, at the time, the Alexis Hold Insurance Group. And I specifically hired 26 single moms because that was the age I was when I started my agency. (laughs) Um, And I taught them the business. We were full service, property and casualty, life and health and security license. Um, We even uh, did, we did commercial lines, we did benefits, and we also did personal lines and we were heavy in life insurance. Like life insurance was our thing. Because, you know, we understand how critical it is to have it, you know, when you are the that only source of income. Was there a personal experience that you had that led you to do this? In other words, a lot of the people that I talked to in the insurance industry, and let me give you a perfect example. When I was in Miami in April this year, you know, I spoke to the founder of, uh, of an insure tech startup in, in um, South America. And he said his parents were in the insurance industry and he was driving in a car with his dad and his dad had a stroke and his, actually his parents weren't, this was another guy, but his, his dad had a stroke and he died and his dad had no insurance and it put the family in bad straits. He said for something like 12 to 15 years and for no apparent reason, right? Just because they didn't have any health insurance and didn't have any life insurance. And then he said 15 years later when his mother contracted cancer, Luckily, they had insurance because they figured it out. Was there some life event for you that taught you this or was it just kind of happenstance? Do you know what I mean? No, it was definitely a life event. Uh, So two life events happened that really kind of pushed me into insurance. The very first one that happened was when I originally first moved to Atlanta and I moved in. I was living on my own, moved in my very first apartment. Um, during the first two weeks, as soon as I had moved everything into my apartment, I got robbed. Oh God. And lost everything. I already barely had anything. Um, (laughs) And literally I remember the, um, agent in the office at the apartment complex saying, well, you didn't get renter's insurance. And I was like, what is renter's insurance? And she's like, I have no idea what that is. And she's like, oh, it's only $20. And we would have probably given you $30,000 to be able to start over now that you've been robbed. Thanks for and telling me. And I'm like, yeah, thanks for telling me now. Right. <laughs> so uh, that was like the first nudge. And then the the more major nudge that really pushed me was um, literally kind of, I remember it's big basically going back home to right after this to help take care of my grandfather. I wanted to help my grandmother. My grandmother had to retire literally a whole two years early because my grandfather had a stroke. He had multiple strokes back to back and he was an entrepreneur. He had made a ton of money in his life. He owned a brick masonry company. I had seen him give so much to people and I realized that he bought Um, a lot of different policies throughout the years, just helping out insurance agents who were coming through. And back in the day when they were doing debit insurance, (laughs) when your insurance agent would come by on a weekly basis and you make those payments directly to the agent, like, you know, um, it was stuff like that. And I remember when my grandfather got sick, we, my grandmother and my grandfather, number one, my grandma had to go through her retirement savings in order to help to pay for his dialysis and all of those things and rehab. Then she also had to do a major spin down just so they could get on uh, the Medicare and things like that. Um, So she had to sell property or at least sign it over to other family members in the house because that was the only way they were going to get access to funds. Right. So that now I know I, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm like, man, was it not any insurance that we could have gotten that would kind of kept you guys from having to 
do this? Because to me, my, my grandparents had, they never went, I never remember them ever going without. I never remember their lights being off, them yeah. <laughs> not having cable. So I knew that they always had money. But the only thing people and the agents that they had interacted with were willing to sell them was life insurance, things that they could use after death. Right. And it was things like that where I was like, I would have loved to know about something that he could have had that would have paid for the nursing home, right. paid for the nurse to come to the house, things like that. And it was, you know, watching my family band together. And then I realized that it had became a, it had become a cycle on multiple sides of my family. Every time a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle got sick, someone had to quit their job in order to be that person's caretaker. And I was like, how can I truly make an impact to where I can make sure that that cycle ends with me? Right. I don't want to have to quit my job in order to take care of my parents when they get old. So I discovered the insurance industry and literally I had been asked to go into the insurance industry literally since I was probably graduating from high school wow. because my grandparents used to actually have a they used to have this uh, commercial cleaning company and their number one client was a life insurance company. Love it. <laughs> so like I already kind of had that, you know, as a, as a, you know, a, something that kind of reminded me, okay, what, this is what the insurance industry is. But after that, I was like, I, there has to be a better way. And that was when I discovered the life insurance business and what long-term care insurance would have, could have looked like for my family. And that was a huge, huge push. And then also being a single mom, I was like, I have to make a huge impact. I want to leave a legacy for my son at the time. And I was like, how can I do that? And also make an impact, but also make great money at the same time. So that's how I got into the insurance industry. How would you characterize the state of the industry right now, particularly in the United States where you operate? Do you know what I mean? Oh my, and and yeah. also just include this idea of like what insurtechs have done over the past five years and where you think it's going from now on, because I think that that's, changing materially no uh it is it is and and i think it's it's changing depending on the industry verticals that they're approaching as well go ahead i definitely feel like you know when it comes to the state of the insurance and insure tech industry number one i noticed that during the like right when the pandemic started i'm going to take it back take a few steps back just yep. a second Right before the pandemic hit, I went to, um, I think it was the LIMRA conference, LIC conference, all kind of leading up to March 2020. And at both of those, uh, both of those conferences, the theme was digital transformation. It was something around <laughs> digital transformation, innovation. And that was where I discovered the InsureTech space, like truly discovered it. And I was like, how did I not know? know that there was a tech side of the insurance industry. So you're operating the insurance business. You've had all these influences, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't clear, even to you, somebody who was operating inside the industry, that there was this thing going on called insure tech. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't at all. And I had, I even asked my mentors. I remember when I was considering uh, a role in the insure tech space and they were like, what's insure tech? Really? And let me tell you, let me tell you what a lot of them said. Go ahead. A lot of these senior executives at some, some major insurance carriers as well on the broker side, they were like, isn't the insure tech space going to come in and take our jobs and eliminate us as agents and brokers? Is that what they if thought? That's what that, mm -hmm, that's yeah. exactly what they thought. And I'm glad I didn't dial into that. I did my own research yeah. <laughs> to truly see what that meant. And it meant more innovation for the industry. And really also making the agents and brokers lives easier. It's all about simplifying things that would normally take us forever to do. For instance, I'll never forget when I had to do my first like cyber endorsement data breach add on to a bot policy. Okay. It took slow, a whole <laughs> slow down. <laughs> slow down for the people that may not know what that means. One more time. And then just explain what that means. Because I think it's important, right? Because it's yeah. a, you're including a lot of different things there. But I think it's important mm -hmm. to explain to people what that means and why that was important. And then how technology mm -hmm. helped enable that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, for instance, you have the business owner's policy. We call it a BOP. And what would happen is I had a, a small business owner come to me and say, hey, this uh, new uh, the supply chain company that I'm working with, they are requiring that I have some type of cyber data breach coverage in case my company, you know, becomes a victim of a cyber attack. It's important. 
And and it's, it was very important. But as agents and brokers, we had no clue still what that was. We were just willing to sell it. Okay. And and um, I remember saying, well, I don't I'm not really sure if it's going to give them the coverage that they need. And no one could answer the question if it really would cover everything that they needed. Yeah. It was still it was still pretty foreign language to everybody. Yep. And I remember it taking a whole four weeks before I could actually get a quote just for an endorsement. Really? And the application, yes, the application was so long. Like it was so long to where I would hear other agents and brokers say, why are you doing that? It's, it's too time consuming. We'd just rather not give them the coverage if it's going to take that long just to get a quote, which is hard, which is sad to hear, you know? In, in a way, but particularly in the cyberspace, like if you look at what's happening in the cyber security, cyber insurance space, mm-hmm. this is becoming a real thing, but also it's being hard, it's hard to quantify exactly what the outcomes are going to be. I mean, and since that time, what, what, what was that like four or five years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it? I think it was about, Go ahead. It's, yeah, it was about six years ago. Six years actually. ago. Six or seven. Yeah. I mean, I've done a ton of conversations on cyber insurance, but from your perspective, right, particularly because that was your introduction to it, how do you think it's changed over time since then? particularly in in the provision of coverage, right? In, in filling that gap. Yeah. Now I look at it as my, my favorite thing to say when it comes to cyber insurance is I have a new found perspective on cyber insurance because I did do standalone cyber and yeah. ran, I was head of agency marketing for Capital Cyber, which is a standalone cyber insure tech. And one of the things that I learned very quickly, like my first week working there was that basically cyber insurance kind of mirrors life insurance, but it's for your business. Because when you think about it, think about it. Okay. I die. I don't have life insurance. My family's literally going to be broke. And if my business dies, I'm literally going to be broken. All my employees, which are my family are going to be broke. So kind of the same thing, right? It's kind of the same thing. I had to figure out the best way to kind of understand it and comprehend it so that I could tell other agents and brokers about it and break it down because it was so complex. You know, it's still very complex. And then the other thing is, is cyber changes on a daily basis. So unlike other lines of business, life insurance, property and casualty, whether it's commercial or personal, we have all these years of data and the actuaries have all of this, uh, all of these numbers and the data that they can work with to kind of figure out where the risks are, how to, you know, how to mitigate these things, what the numbers should look like, always to life insurance, you have your mortality table, all of that. You don't have that in cyber. <laughs> and you don't have enough data. There's... So you don't have enough, because in, in the life business, you have all this kind of hundreds of years of data, right? Of like how old yes. people are when they die and how the life expectancy changes over time. It's yes. really interesting you say this too, and you don't have that kind of data in the in the cyber business because it hasn't been around long enough. I had mm-hmm. a re- I did a recording with a guy named Gene Yu who runs a business called Black Panda, and one of the mm. things he said to me was that like, again, similar to what you're saying, is it's just changing the service surface, excuse me, of where the coverage is. It's like yeah. fighting the same war, whether it's life insurance or cyber insurance but just on a different surface. It was a really interesting concept for me. And I think you're kind of saying the same thing, but how do you deal Mm -hmm. with this now that there isn't enough data? How do you price it? How do you do that risk mitigation in a place where there's just not enough data yet? Well, it's being, it's having more of an innovative approach, number one, which is where the insure techs come in. So what I love about how the insure techs have approached the cyber market is they're coupling cybersecurity with cyber insurance and they're creating what we like to call cyber resilience. Yeah. They're not ahead. just giving you the policy. They're actually helping you mitigate the risk, which is what we don't traditionally do in insurance. <laughs> you know, that's not what we do. We don't tell you exactly how to keep from dying <laughs> when it comes to life insurance. No, but isn't, but isn't this happening in the health space as well? Right. In other words, if you look at cyber security and cyber insurance, you're saying, Actually, to prevent against this happening, we'll sell you some insurance and we'll give you some coverage for it. But to prevent this from happening to you, you should also do these other things as well. The and wellness ha- piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is happening. Yeah. This is the wellness piece in the health space. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry, it ahead. is. It is. Absolutely. Those two, I completely agree. They're yeah. the only two that I feel that are really trying to truly help with the risk mitigation and they're taking action on it yeah. and being innovative in their approach with it as well. Now, 
how this actually, you know, when it comes to the soft, somewhat hard market that cyber is in when it comes to individual policies right now, because of all the risk, the reinsurers are still kind of in that space where they're kind of in the middle and not really sure if they want to insure these particular risks because they don't have a lot of data to work with. We talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, but you can actually still insure it. You just kind of have to increase the price of it. But then there's an affordability thing because it's not a requirement yet. You know, it's not required like auto insurance. Right. So right, right. I feel like, I feel like that's the level that we'll have to get through, get to in cyber in order for everyone to kind of understand like cyber, cyber insurance is life insurance for your business. But the other piece that I want to talk about yes. is I love the cybersecurity piece. Like, all the insure techs are taking an extra step. They're like, okay, well, let me go partner with all these cybersecurity companies. Number one, it helps me It helps me vet them, figure out what type of great vendors are out here who can help also help with mitigating the risk. It helps me to, you know, be able to negotiate a value add for my clients, which we don't focus a lot on, on value adds in our traditional policies. You know, it's selling that whole new piece of value add coupled with, insurance coupled with risk mitigation is there a is there a metaphor in the cyberspace i i, I want to dig deeper into this because i do have some opinions here and because this other guy that i was telling you about gave me some really interesting stories but is there a metaphor here for the rest of the insurance agency the rest of the insurance business thinking about how can we be a risk mitigation business as well as an insurance business and what kind of services can we provide to do that risk mitigation, whether it's in installing IoT devices to prevent against water damage or to prevent against fire damage, all these things that they can do that stops yeah. the necessity to pay out but mm -hmm. still creates a, a, a surface for that insurance policy. Does, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly I know exactly what you mean. Even when it comes to like the boiler insurance product, yeah. you know, all of that. And I feel like that's where the insure tech space is coming in and they're adding that innovation risk mitigation piece in there yeah. because they're taking it a step further. You know, they're saying, so, hey, we will actually create and develop technology that will, number one, take us half the time to do <laughs> because it is the startup space. We can get something done in a year that a traditional carrier would take literally 10 years. And I'm not exaggerating because I'll never forget that was one of the presentations that I saw. Um, at the beginning of 2020 at one of those conferences, this wow. major carrier was bragging about this new technology they developed, but he showed us the journey and it took them 10 years to make it. Fair enough. 10 years. Yeah. So I get it. You have so much bureaucracy and red tape that you have to go through. It, so I'm, it, it makes a lot of sense. So why not partner with these insure techs who are already, they're, they're already in a space of, they had created a culture of innovation. So they're right. like, how do we make things Number one, more efficient, more cost efficient. How do we help you mitigate the risk? We want to take that inside out look at every single product. And I feel like that's where the insure tech space is coming in and adding that innovation and technology and leveraging that to make everybody's job easier. Are there other examples of this outside of cyber? Yeah, definitely outside of cyber. So some of the other ones um, that I've seen I saw uh, this is one newer insure tech that I've seen in the healthcare space. Number one, they are actually leveraging technology to get it to communities, to get healthcare to communities that otherwise wouldn't actually have access to healthcare. They're okay. creating these custom policies for like minorities. And even I even heard of one product that was specifically made, a healthcare product that was, that was specifically made for for the LGBTQ plus uh, community, just for people who have HIV, who can't get health insurance. Right. And they're leveraging technology to do that, you know, and then you're also, and then they're also giving you the education. They're not just giving you this insurance, they're part pairing it with education too. Yeah. I mean, we talk particularly out here, like I live in Asia, right? So we talk a lot about financial literacy and insurance literacy out here, but is the mm -hmm. necessity there as well to provide that literacy in the markets in which you deal. And there's a second question that I want to follow on with. So think about the literacy thing for a second and how important that mm -hmm. is. But secondly, is there a technological solution, particularly as you mentioned, in the LGBTQ community, which is 
statistically not large, but still important to deal with mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. how to use technology to provide personalization in the insurance industry. So the people that cannot normally get policies because they're not part of a large group can still mm -hmm. get the same kind of coverage that people are part of a large cohort can get. Because that's important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that uh, a lot of the tech, including AI, people are leveraging AI in the underwriting process, yeah. which I actually love. I won't talk about because, it. <laughs> because you can't, like, there's a lot of bias when it comes to underwriters. I always say underwriters have, like, way too much power sometimes. <laughs> They can literally cut you right off at the knees if they're like, nope, we don't want, want to do it. We don't like the way the risk looks. Right. I love the fact that we're leveraging AI and technology to take a deeper look at other nuances that we haven't thought about um, in there. So I feel like that's that's a huge piece. It's going to help eliminate a lot of bias in the underwriting process. Then the other piece of that, the literacy piece, I feel like, honestly, it should be more of a to me, it's common sense, but to everyone else, it's innovation. Yeah. <laughs> As I always yeah. say, to educate someone about a brand new solution or product or service that you've created right? before you actually try to push it to two different markets. Because you have to educate the agents and brokers because they have to understand how to position it in the market, what type of value is there, you know, exactly what it's going to, what they're going to get out of the deal. Um, and they have to understand how it can also help them because the uh, agent and broker's number one job is to do what's best for the client. But they can't they can't actually leverage a lot of the insure techs if they don't really truly understand how to leverage them, understand their product, understand how the technology is helpful, understand how all, use, utilizing your data and learning about your company and what's happening on the Internet even on the cyber side, looking at the dark web reports, things like that, and actually showing them why they would fall victim to a cyber attack, even though it's just a mom and pop restaurant that has just a cash register that's online. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But the thing is that so cyber, like that. and we can get back to cyber in a second, right? But the thing with cyber <laughs> is that they're not targeting anybody in particular. They don't know whether you're a multi-billion dollar they corporation don't. or a one-person restaurant just flipping like four hamburgers a day. Because mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're just attacking at scale. Correct. Right? Correct. So, and, and that's one mm -hmm. of the benefits and the drawbacks of tech is that it allows them to say, here's the thing that could operationally destroy Apple yes. and like mm -hmm. Bill's taco stand at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, that's why the education piece is so important. It's super important. Yeah, you know, everybody has to understand what, what the technology actually does, how to leverage it in the right way, you know, um, and also, you know, how to actually, when it comes to your consumers, whether it's the uh, B2B or B2C, you want to make sure that they understand why they need it, you know, in order for them to actually, for the adoption to be much better, because you don't want them to just buy the insurance product. You want them to also use the value adds, leverage the education that you've created, yeah. all of that when it comes to any product or solution. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like building firehouses in every neighborhood. You want to make sure that the yes. fires never happen, but if they do happen, that the fireman is there quickly. And that's the same mm -hmm. thing, I think, in the cyberspace. You don't want anyone to ever have a cyber attack be successful against them, but if it is, mm -hmm. you want to be able to disintermediate and mitigate it as fast as possible. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned AI, and I can't get away from this because I use it every single day. It makes me way more efficient. But I'm yeah. curious about how artificial intelligence can help brokers use the data and, and the information that they have and that their colleagues have to provide better services and better service because I think those things are related but slightly different. They are to their potential policyholders as we move forward, right? If you look at the way that LLMs, large language models are working and just the access information and what it can do to create messaging for people. And part of this is the literacy thing we were talking about. How do you mm -hmm. superpower the agents and the brokers so that they can better serve clients using AI? Yeah, so of course, literacy is a part of that. But yeah. the other piece is going to be literally showing that agent and broker this is how my product or solution is here to aid you in 
to get closing more deals faster, cross-selling opportunities. Like I love the fact that so many new technologies now are thinking about, especially like the agency management software that a lot of people are making. They are actually identifying cross-selling opportunities for agents and brokers. And one of the things that we always have to keep in mind when you're actually developing a product or solution for agency and broker communities is, is that they are very used to doing things manually. <laughs> Everything. Like right. a part of the process is like storing your customer files in a drawer <laughs> before <laughs> they were actually stored online. Right. <laughs> and literally because of, that goes back to the regulation around that, like what regulation requires that I have digital versus the paper files that I'm supposed to have in my office. Um, and then even like collecting digital signatures, like that was a big deal. I'll never forget when we transitioned from being able to, to ha not have to go see eight uh, clients in person to get really? a signature. So what did you use? Did you just, did you use the we digital signing stuff? The digital signing stuff. You would have to bring that with you and you plug it into your laptop and that's how you get the signatures. You can never get a signature not being in person. Wow. So, and then it's like, and then you have to provide them with also the, when it comes to any of the stuff, like the binders, you had to hand them <laughs> a physical binder. You couldn't send it via email a lot of times. Stop it. You have to think of, <laughs> I know, right? So these Stop are the it. things that we have to remember is they are still very used to doing everything manually. So it's more about focusing on positioning your messaging to always show agents and brokers, hey, this is here to actually streamline this particular process for you. This is here to help you identify cross-selling opportunities that normally you would have to have one person on your staff. That's their only job is to identify everyone in the book of business. Imagine having 1,100 agents and brokers in your book of business and you have to go through each one of them manually just yes. to identify cross-selling opportunities. So do you see, I mean, you've been at this for a while, right? But do you see a mm -hmm. different type of person now entering the industry that is more tech savvy, right? Like you, you're an open-minded person. So mm -hmm. you, no one needed to convince you. Like once you got exposed to these insure techs, you were like, I need to be able mm -hmm. to do that too. But there are yes. a lot of people, yes. and in every industry, this is true, not just insurance, but we're talking about insurance. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people that are in the industry that just say, this is the way I've always done it. I always want to do it this way. But as new Correct. people come in, do you see the new people coming in being more tech savvy so that they're more open-minded to saying, yeah, we should try this new tech-enabled yeah. experience to make the business better? Yeah, I see, I see it being kind of 50-50. Okay. Um, because a lot, of it, a lot of it has to do with for instance, you have to think about a lot of agents and brokers inherit books of business. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. They inherit them yeah. or they purchase them. Which also means and sometimes which, they, so which also means that the clients that they have are not used to dealing digitally with things too. And they want to deal the same way. Sorry, go ahead. It's a good point though, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 So that's the, that's one piece. Because nobody wants to start a scratch from uh, a scratch agency if they don't have to. Yeah, why Especially not? Yeah. in the society that we have today is microwave society. I would love to go out and buy a book of business, already go ahead and start my agency with sure. 2,000 clients. Sure, I started, sure. I specifically chose a scratch agency because I was thinking things like what you just said. If I ever transition or do something different, I want these to be clients that I actually had so they understand my mentality. But also they can move with you as you grow and learn things. You yes. can grow and learn with them. So if you started at yep. scratch... Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you're mm -hmm. dealing with Lisa first on a manual basis, you're like, hey, you know, Lee, if we do this thing now digitally, it's going to make your life easier. She'll be like, fine, because I trust you because you've always yeah. been with her. Absolutely. I hadn't thought Absolutely. about it from a customer side, but yeah, it's true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that, that's really where the adoption is kind of slow because they're like, what about my customer? And the number one thing that, sh that people have to remember when you're dealing with agents and brokers especially on the independent side is yeah. this is 100% commission for them so if oh. their clients don't adopt <laughs> if the adoption is slow yeah. they're gonna keep they're gonna keep doing it the old way until their clients can get on board right um so I think that's something that we have to think about how can we make that transition easier for their clients and them like we're always thinking about the agents but we also have to think about the end user as well, who also may be a part of that cycle when it comes to that. 
So you've been through a lot of this transition, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, you've made Absolutely. me think about this in a completely different way, particularly from the customer side, because I hadn't really considered that at scale. The mm -hmm. whole idea for me was always like, how do you apply technology to let the agents change the way they behave and the brokers and the insurers and the carriers and also the reinsurers? But at some level, you got to get the clients to just go, I'm happy doing this through a chat app. Yes, you right? do. And that's you have to hard. get their clients on board. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah, hard because they're, yeah, their clients are their bread and butter. They're exactly. going to always go back to what do my clients need? What type of book of business do I have currently? Yeah. If I'm starting at scratch agency, I can automatically transition people into technology because they're going to do whatever, whatever my agency does, they're going to follow because I was the person who brought them into the agency versus if they had Bob who, who was a baby boomer, <laughs> who they are so used to physically going into his office to see him, you know, in order to pay a bill or to add a card to their policy. They don't, they are, they, and they're also used to talking to the and the agency uh, producers who are in the office as yeah. well, like the CSRs. They want to talk to them over the phone. They don't really want to do the chat bot. So you kind of have to think of all of those different audiences. Yeah, and for me, like, I'm a hybrid guy. Mm -hmm. Like, I bought my first personal insurance policy at the beginning of last year, 2022, because I've been working at big companies for my whole life, so I never actually mm -hmm. had to think about buying insurance because it was just there. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And when I had to buy my own insurance, I remember, I'm a tech guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do a tech podcast. I do tons of tech podcasts. <laughs> like, I'm into tech, but I wanted yeah. to have an agent, and I wanted to have someone to talk to. Yeah, but absolutely. I also wanted to have this hybrid experience where the stuff that she was giving me was digitally presented to me, right? Because mm -hmm. I didn't want to have this whole paper process. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people like I am out there, but I think there are a lot of people that are older than I am or even my age that just like, I don't want to deal with an iPad. I just want to see paper and I want to talk to an agent all the time. I don't do anything digitally, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mm -hmm. hadn't thought about it, but really interesting yeah. stuff. Can I ask you this though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. After being in the industry for so long, why did you like branch out and start your own consulting company? Well, number one, once I became a, a part of the insurtech space, I identified a ton of holes in the industry. A ton of? Holes in the industry. Holes, got it. There Go were ahead. a lot of holes that I identified because working as a startup executive, I identified that we were really in the industry from an investment perspective. We're giving a lot of funding to people. This is a lot of times this is their this is their first time having a few million dollars in their <laughs> bank account. Yeah. <laughs> they came up with a great idea. Right. An investor gave them a few million dollars and they're like, okay, let me go hire all of my cousins to come <laughs> and work for me. <laughs> Sounds like the mafia to me. Sorry, go ahead. And then they don't, number one, they don't, they don't identify truly what every person's strength is or what they need from an operational standpoint. Fair enough. And, and they also don't have the experience of being a true business owner, not a solopreneur. And I think that's one of the, that was one of the things that I identified was yeah. a lot of startup founders are very startup entrepreneur that solopreneur, they have that education, but they don't have the education on how to actually build a multi-million dollar and maybe even billion dollar operation from the beginning. Yeah. And also I identified that there were a lot of mistakes being made that could have been avoided if they had the right strategy in, in, in place to begin with. Yeah. Like, yeah. think about it. When they get funding, they automatically say, okay, we're going to put all this money towards hiring. But then they have to come back and raise a little bit more money because they realize they didn't get enough money for the technology add-ons that they needed to do. <laughs> now that they've hired all of these people and they probably are going to, their burn rate is going to be so high. It may be a few million dollars a month when they actually only probably ask for 15 million. Right. Well, that means you're not, that means your company's only going to last for a few months before you have to do another fundraise. If yeah. you don't, put the right strategy in place and also i've i also saw where people weren't identifying the right founders from the beginning that talk they need me. their co-founders yeah talk to me about you this. know yeah so number one 
okay, if I'm building a technology, the first person, and, and I and I know that I am not the tech person. I can't build anything. Fair I enough. have the idea. I'm coming with the innovation. Yep. Oh, I'm gonna be the I'm gonna be the inspirational leader and say right. this is what I want. And then what happens if I only go hire a chief product officer to tell me how to do it, but they actually can't build the tech in the way that I need it? When I probably should have had my second person be a chief technology officer instead of a chief product officer. And I probably also should have identified a COO so that they could tell me how to properly build out my operations so that I would know who to hire next. And then what happens is they automatically throw the money into sales and marketing without a strategy. They have a go-to-market strategy, but then they don't have a separate sales strategy and a separate marketing strategy. And then what happens is they've done all these great hires. They hire 300 people within six months. Yeah. Now next year they have to do five rounds of layoffs right. because they overhired and didn't hire key people. But Alexis, what do you think should really happen? And, and let me let me share an anecdote with you. So like my business partner and I spend tons of time. I mean, and, and believe me, he's not the first business partner I have. And we've I had mm -hmm. fights with like three or four previous ones. So I believe you on this, right? I'm with you on this. Mm -hmm. Finding the right co-founder, I think, is super important. But, like, we spend tons of time trying to figure out, like, should we raise money? Do we have enough mm -hmm. revenue? Like, all these mm -hmm. things strategically before we mm -hmm. go out and do anything that we do. W what do you yeah. think it is about some of these founders that they, they just want to grow so fast? Is it, like, the money that they, that they raise that sort of pushes them to grow faster than they should? And, like, what kind of strategy should they have? so that they can be more deliberate and more mm -hmm. moderate in the way that they build these companies. Yeah, so it's definitely the money that they raise because think about it. Now that you've raised that money, you owe people. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> and you're focused on getting them their money back by any means necessary. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, look at, the way, if you look at the way VC works, right, seven, they've got a seven-year window in which they've got to mm -hmm. not, not return the money but grow fast enough so that that investment actually yeah. makes sense for that venture capitalist. Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what I've noticed is like a lot of my clients that I have on board, I got them through investors and reinsurers. That's who referred the clients to me. Right. Because they were like, some of them were like, hey, well, the number one thing they would tell me, well, I would like to give them more money because this is something that I did before I started my consulting company. I would, I would give advice to investors on if I think they should make an investment in a particular startup okay. based on their business model, their go-to-market strategy and things like that. And I would notice that when I'm doing these evaluations, they'll say, well, I like, I like the company. I like the idea, but I don't like the team. The team doesn't have enough experience for what they're trying to do. Then I would hear also their go-to-market strategy isn't strong enough but I like everyone on the team and I like the product that they have. See, there's always a few missing pieces yeah. and the investors don't give them all of that information. <laughs> <laughs> so they have no idea that strategy is the key, no matter what strategy is, whether it's a sales marketing, a go to market strategy, a operation strategy, having a strategy, a strong strategy in place before you spend a dime of that money is the number one thing that every single startup founder needs to have. Yeah, You have to be strategic in your hires when it comes to your co-founders. You have to be strategic in even how much equity you give up. Because the more equity you give up, the less power you hold. Yeah, I mean, how can people <laughs> not know that? A lot of them don't. They don't. That's the part that I, yeah, that's the part that I feel like they should know. And pretty much the most important piece, like the more equity and the more fundraising you do, the more equity you're going to have to give up. Dilution, which yeah. means yeah you have to dilute it and i found out that a lot of founders don't understand that which is where these accelerators are great but everybody doesn't get accepted into an accelerator right. and they also don't even know that there is an accelerator that they could join really yeah i, I listen you'd be surprised at how many startup founders don't even know that accelerators exist until i had this conversation conversation and tell them well, have you thought about going into an accelerator? Like when I feel like they don't know anything and they shouldn't be running a business at all, I'll send them to an accelerator before I take them on as a client. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Go to school Like first. if you don't know the basics, yes. <laughs> if you don't know the basics, 
I'm going to be frustrated. So no, just we're going to send you to an accelerator. And after you graduate from the accelerator, then you can hire my firm and we'll come on and help you truly take this a step further because now you can at least start with some basic knowledge. But that's the thing. A lot of these startup founders are used to being employees. Yeah. yeah they yeah. haven't always been a CEO. Yes, you're going to have a few startup founders who have owned their own companies, but even that is different. Owning an agency is different than owning an insure tech company. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I feel like one of the things that I learned from running my own business, and I'm curious about your opinion on this, Mm-hmm. is that it's really important to get at least one customer first where you can generate some revenue. And I feel like bootstrapping is like super important. Oh, I, I really do. I feel like you should never, like I feel like taking a seed stage investment, The just the more I've thought about this, mm-hmm. is just the wrong mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. You know, that's why I really like good investors who will tell you the truth. You know, I was considering... Um, um, getting funding for an idea that I had. Go ahead. And I said, I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to sit down and actually talk to some of my investor buddies, get some advice from them. Cause I want them to tell me the truth. Like how much equity, how much equity is enough equity? Cause these are the questions that all the founders have. Yeah. How much equity is enough equity? How much is too much? Yep. Do I have to give a board seat? Um, you know, how much money is, should I be asking for it? Am I asking for enough? Right. You know, and is my valuation just this crazy number that I just pulled out of the sky? (laughs) Those are the things. So I sat down and I talked to them. And when I told them my idea, they said, Alexis, they said, all of them, literally, I sat down with four investors and they all said, yeah, I could give you the money. But to be honest, it doesn't make sense. You could literally bootstrap this and then come to me in like a year or two and you'll get to keep way more equity exactly. because you'll you'll prove that it's the product market fit. <laughs> you'll also have customers on your platform, things like that. And then you get to have a lot. You'll, you'll actually have skin in the game, which is really important. So, you know, bootstrapping is definitely an option for those who can. Now, for those who who really need the money in order to bring the product to life. I recommend, you know, maybe doing an accelerator so you can actually learn kind of some what the different avenues out there for for you are at, you know, when it comes to that as well. Yeah. I mean, I've changed my mind on this. I used to think that seed stage investing was a really good idea, but now I just think it's a really bad idea. I really do. And I know, and I know every situation is different. Sorry, I interrupted you. I know every situation is different, but I'm just Mm -hmm. saying like, if you can create enough revenue for yourself so that you can just be self-sustaining, like just to eat. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 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 And yeah. one, but the weird thing for me is once you do that and can accomplish that, then you almost don't want to take external investment money because you're like, I got to here just I on my own. I did all of this. Yes. Why yes. do I want to give you I even like it. 5% of my company? Like now <laughs> I got to argue with you about strategy. Like I just don't know. And I'm curious like what it looks like for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I feel like that's a, that's a good point to take because that's a huge reason why they go out and do all these mass hires where, well, right. my investor said I need to grow. Okay. But what does growing mean to you? Yeah. <laughs> right. What does, do they want you to grow? as a, They want you to grow your customer base. Do they want you to grow the employees? And they all, they all pay, play this guessing game of what that should actually look like. Exactly. And you know what I mean? So it's like, you really, truly, it's, it's pretty much, it's a case by case basis. Like, if you know that you don't have the money to bootstrap it, and then you don't have a choice. You definitely need to get go the seed funding round, yeah. um, that perspective. But if you actually have the ability to at least maybe invest a few thousand into getting it off the ground, yep. you come in with way more to bring to the table to where you can actually have a true conversation where you're pretty much almost equal you know, with your investors, you can say, well, this is how much I'm willing to give up. This is how much I'm not willing to give up because this is what I've done on my own. But and this, investors love to see that. Yeah, but this is the key thing. And I'll leave you with this and then I should probably let you go because we've been at this for a while. But <laughs> no, because and, and I want to have you back on because I, there's so much more to talk about. But here's the thing I think Absolutely. is that if you build enough revenue over time through bootstrapping, by the time that investors are interested in investing in you, you have all the leverage now. You've flipped the bid on where the Absolutely. leverage is. And you can just go, mm-hmm. you know, I can take your five million bucks, but I don't mm-hmm. really need it. 
But if you want mm-hmm. to invest and be along for the journey, I'll let you in. But now I have the leverage and you don't have it. Yes. And I'm still going to build the way I want to build. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to have you along. And maybe you can connect me to some potential clients and stuff like that. But don't tell yep. me what to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is literally, you have that leverage now. Yeah. That's the whole point of the the bootstrapping. And I absolutely love when my pre-seed clients come to me and they say, I've, I've been bootstrapping this whole thing and now I'm ready to fundraise. And I'm like, oh, this is the good stuff. Like <laughs> now we can talk about, because I'm going to help you put your pitch deck together. Right. I'm going to introduce you to a couple of investors because you're, and I'm going to even, and I even do pitch, pitch coaching when yeah. it comes to that. I love those. I've done that. <laughs> Yeah, I love those because you have that leverage. You literally can go in and get exactly what you want. But you know, if you don't you, have it. But you know, when you take on a client, who's going to raise and who's not going to raise. Yeah, you know for sure. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, like when Absolutely. you go, because I look, I did this for a company almost ten years ago. We walked into investors' rooms and they were like, "Yeah, we're not going to do it." And I was like, "I feel bad for you because when this thing goes public, you're going to feel like you've missed out." And it, it's the exact yeah. thing that happened because I was one hundred percent sure that they were going to. They have like hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue right now, and you're like, mm. you weren't paying attention. It was so obvious to me. Okay, look, yeah. I can keep going with you, Alexis. I love this conversation. You Absolutely, come, me too. I hope it's okay for you, but you got to come back and do more. Is that cool? I would love that. I would love that, Michael. Seriously, this is great. It's always great chatting with you. <laughs> <laughs> we could go on and on and talk about so many topics. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I would love to come back. So I'll leave this with you. Anytime you want to come on the show, anytime you have a new idea or a new thing you want to discuss, you just come to me. We'll get you on and we'll publish it. Is that cool? That sounds good to me. Alexis Vaughn, the founder and CEO of Off Course Consulting. You are awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I really appreciate it.